Welcome to the 15-Minute Hour. I'm your host, Dr. Zachary Friedman, licensed clinical psychologist and your guide and liaison to mental health and therapy. Today on the show, I speak with fellow clinical psychologist, Dr. Ren Massey, about his work with transgender and gender nonconforming population. Uh, him and I have actually been trying to get him on the show for a while now because it is such an important topic that we're both very passionate about. Dr. Ren Massey is the last president of the Georgia Psychological Association and has over 30 years experience doing therapy with a variety of people with different issues. He also specializes in working with the transgender and gender nonconforming population that is a specialty area requiring lots of nuanced information. On the show, we discuss numerous topics, such as separating gender from sexuality, how basic therapy practices, such as the clinician's paperwork, require modification, and the crossover between medical and psychological when doing this work. This topic is really critical when you consider that the rate of transgender individuals attempting suicide ranges from 30 to 50%. For comparison, the suicide attempt rate for the average cisgender person is around 4.5%, so that's a staggering number when you think about that. Many of these individuals face a very hostile environment on a daily basis as a result of their minority status, and thus they show increased rates of mental health issues and suicide rates. So I'm really glad that Dr. Massey and I were able to talk on the show about this topic. So hopefully you will at least learn something about the experience of transgender and gender nonconforming individuals. As always, you can find me on Twitter at 50MHPodcast. That's at 50MHPodcast. Dr. Massey can be found at his website, drrenmassey.com. That's D-R-R-E-N-M-A-S-S-E-Y.com. Or feel free to just Google Dr. Ren Massey. He serves folks in the Atlanta, Georgia area. Also, if you have some time, please rate the show on iTunes because more reviews helps the show get promoted more and then more people get access to it and more people are able to learn about mental health in therapy and it is greatly appreciated. And now, my interview with Dr. Ren Massey. Dr. Ren Massey, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Zach. Glad to have you on the show and uh, I really... We had talked before about this and that we're both passionate about this topic and you are have far more experience and far more of a specialty uh, in working with uh, the trans population. So I really wanted to spend some more time talking about that. And, and one of the first things I wanted to talk about is kind of the, the general lay of the land of what this work looks like. Because uh, I think that from a patient perspective that the average patient may not know like is is that different is is, is the work really that different is it the same or or you know considerations to think about because in my experience in working with trans folks that there's a lot of things that are different so i wanted to at least start there about what you think is kind of the general lay of the land speaking about doing therapy with trans folks all right well that's a good place to start when People need to understand trans issues. The first, and I'm using trans as an overarching kind of term. Mm -hmm. uh, the thing that I'm really interested in people having is a competence to work with this population. 
And that competence includes, for example, knowing that trans folks are a diverse group. So not everybody, you know, when people think about transgender, they think somebody who's transitioning female to male or male to female. And that's a good chunk of folks, and those are who are kind of more visible in the population. But there's actually a lot of folks who are what's called gender nonconforming or GNC or non-binary identified or other variations of not fitting into what some people call the heteronormative expectations. And when I say heteronormative, I mean a lot of folks, you know, we're usually taught to think that there are, that everybody's heterosexual and that there's either the binary of being male or female. And the reality is, like when I started studying this work, I got reminded that there are a lot of folks who are intersex as well. And for your listeners, I know you probably know this, but for your listeners, intersex are folks who may have ambiguous genitalia or they may have reproductive organs of both sexes. So they may have XXY chromosomes. Mm -hmm. They may have XO chromosomes. They may have various hormonal conditions that lead to them looking different than most people who are assigned a male gender marker or are assigned a female gender marker. And for me, it was helpful to grasp that not everybody fit into those binary divisions of male or female because then I got to realize, oh, it made more sense to me that some people would have different experiences of their gender. Just like sex is not a binary thing, as much as we kind of learned that in our biology class, that there's XX or XY for male or female, to realize that there are variations biologically kind of helped me get wrapped around that there would be variations in people's experiences. And I sometimes kind of think of people who are trans or gender nonconforming as having some kind of variation that's kind of similar to being intersex, but it's more of your experience. So people who are competent to do work with trans folks, first of all, need to understand that very, that uh, range of gender experiences. And it's also useful to know that there's a lot more trans folks out there than most of us think. I realized that also as I got into doing this work. Um, some more recent studies are showing around high school age, around 0.5 to 1%, close to 1%, are identifying as trans, which means 1 in 100, 1 in 200 high school students are identifying as trans. And then about another 1.5 to 2% are identifying as gender non-binary, gender questioning, gender non-conforming. So that means about three out of 100 kids are probably not experiencing their gender the way a lot of folks do. And folks who, just as a side note, folks who experience that their gender aligns with the gender marker that was assigned to them at birth, that's called being cisgender. Mm -hmm. So first of all, you have to kind of understand that and that for folks who are trans, not being cisgender 
can cause a lot of distress. And there's the social issues of feeling like you don't fit in. And there's also this sense of feeling so bizarre that it, it's not until the last decade or so have we seen much going on, especially in the last five years, that people are getting to see shows, books, movies that portray that there are a lot of folks who don't have this cisgender experience, but rather have this experience that they're the short term uh, short terminology that has come up is that their bodies don't match their brains. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I you're really adding a lot, so I appreciate that. And I, I want to dive into a lot of this because I, I feel like on the one hand, you can make the argument that working with um, transgender, gender nonconforming, um, non-binary, all those folks is very nuanced. And I think to speak to that side of things is that there's a lot to know. Um, there is really a lot to know, like just certain terms. And the way a lot of us have been trained for intakes uh, that we learned, you know, when you're in grad school, you have to modify. You have to modify your questions. It's not just, I oh, ask a little more, right? You have to modify your terms. Your forms have to be more mindful about that because even a form, before you even see the person, can be insulting, can be, I would make the argument, dehumanizing. Um, and so there are a lot of, of terms about, you know, just, just a practice of getting used to asking pronouns, um, that's something I only started integrating in the last couple years because I, I wasn't trained on that. It wasn't, again, that sort of heteronormative, um, what do you call that? The sort of heteronormative assumption. Assumption. That's the mm-hmm. word. That's a good, yeah. Heteronormative assumption is that why would you ask that? And so it wasn't until the last couple years where I was like reading more, going to trainings and, and running into, you know, supervisees who were, you know, who were newer and closer to a lot of the research that reading some of their materials like, oh, why am I not asking that? Like that makes sense of like the instinct to ask that, the instinct to ask and know about what those terms are, just knowing non-binary and what does that mean uh, is there is a lot of information to know. I think on the, the sort of other side of it that there's there's a part of this that isn't that different in that with a lot of other stuff that I think a lot of therapists hopefully are trained on you know I the parallel to me is like acculturation just because somebody identifies and says I identify as you know um, African-American it's like okay well that's a starting point but now we need to see like that can mean so many different things within a person's identity and so there is that other piece where I think it it's asking the same kind of questions and exploring and helping someone tell their story and you also have to know a lot of there's a lot of stuff to know because I think you know there's a lot of terms that are modified that are continuing to be developed where I feel like I could see some therapists being intimidated and saying ah, that feels too I don't agree with it and, I, and that feels too complicated and I don't want to do that I don't, I don't know what you think about that well f- first of all my hat's off to you for being trainable <laughs> and hearing that there are try. <laughs> there are we're noticing that there were terms and things that you were not trained on in school and, and that was my experience and a lot of folks experience that grad schools are just starting to integrate uh, gender sensitivity and gender competence in their training. And I will tell you that trans folks who come to see me 
are very attuned to those exact issues like my forms i have a place for preferred name you know the legal name as well as the preferred name and also for their pronoun pronouns and people appreciate that it's interesting sometimes parents don't fill it out the same way the kids would i work with kids and adults so it matters a lot and Trans folks are paying attention to the vocabulary that's being used or that's not being used. So I think some people will give some leeway if they sense that somebody is open-minded and humble about it. But at the same time, it's not exactly fair to be getting your training during their therapy time. So it's really important to do outside reading to attend continuing education and to get some supervision or consultation on these issues, which I've done with a lot of folks too. Well, I, and I think, I, I think there are with, with any specialty there, it is very easy to step in a direction that like this seems sensible and to go way off course. Right. I think most therapists are trained in at least the idea of exposure therapy, but the actual doing of exposure therapy is hyper-specific. Mm-hmm. And you can be like, this is more or less exposure therapy, right? When it can be problematic. And I think that there are so many ways that maybe seem okay and seem sensible questions that are the complete opposite. And again, on top of a... Um, because I think there are, there are going to be some mistakes at times. I know I've had that where I'm like, oh, that's right. I'm sorry about this. And people have seen that they can see my effort and motivation to like connect with them and, and get things correct. And so I think, but other people can jump to quick questions and, you know, like, oh, so you identify as transgender. Have you had surgery? What, you know, or when are you having surgery? That assumption when that may not even be in their mind at all. And or or, you know, oh, you should have a consult about that and making a bunch of assumptions, which is only pushing those folks away. And as you noted earlier, that we know from talking with folks and we know from research that this is a population that is completely marginalized, com- that has a, a, often a world that is hostile to them on a subtle and a very direct way. And so those kind of things how can how can someone not feel pushed away and ignored when they're trying to reach out and say, I need a little more help here? Yeah, those kinds of things can add to the minority stress experience of sure. being misunderstood or assumptions being made about them. And it can be something subtle or seemingly subtle, like asking a, a trans man, that's a term for female to male person, asking a transgender man, uh, if he, when he had his breast surgery, as opposed to calling it his top surgery or chest surgery, you know, referring to his breast, you know, we want to be sensitive to the terminology that people tend to use, or even at least to ask them what terminology they prefer. Mm-hmm. So that's a specific way to enhance your competency in this area. I think one of the other things that's really important is this more than most areas of therapy, psychotherapy is a very medically intensive specialty to work with. And I had a practice of, for about 18 years uh, before I ended up specializing in a lot of trans uh, and gender nonconforming 
folks in my practice and more than before, and I did some med psych, medical psychology kinds of cases around some chronic health issues and things like that and stress management, but this you really need to know a lot about hormones, about dosages, about the timing of hormones, about options, particularly with children and adolescents and going through puberty and being able to have those conversations. You need to know what surgical options and outcomes are and have a, a very good network and be able to uh, talk about these things candidly. You know, I say penis and vagina and breasts and all sorts of things, you know, more than I ever did before in my practice. And also, you need to be able to help people have realistic expectations of their surgical outcomes or their hormone outcomes. For example, some trans women, male to female people, might think that estrogen will raise their voice as opposed to, you know, like with trans guys, testosterone deepens their voice. But estrogen does not raise somebody's voice. And so a trans woman is going to either have to have a surgery, and there's kind of mixed um, reviews on the vocal surgeries, or engage in a vocal therapy, or come to accept the voice that she has. And to be knowledgeable about all of that and to talk about these things with folks so that they have realistic expectations because having outcomes that don't match their expectations can be very disappointing and lead to depression and doubts and questions as opposed to helping people make informed decisions in advance. And in fact, you know, I think that anybody who's responsible in this area needs to have informed consents where they go over uh, forms that cover the effects of hormones and the risks as well as surgeries and the effects and the risks etc and you know i read endocrinology uh, guidelines to be up to date on what those are and what the you know cardiac cardiac risks are or the stroke risks are for trans men versus trans women. So there's a lot of medical knowledge that goes along with working with this population as well. I'm really glad you said that because I, I absolutely agree that this is one of those areas that, again, just by itself is specialized knowledge terms, things like that. But it really stretches therapists into other areas that we're not always trained in unless you're in a specialty area such as neuropsych or the, the parallel that I think about is eating disorders. I mean, if you're really specializing in eating disorders, there are, there's so much you have to know about physiology and you have to be able to connect with professionals who also know that, you know, expert dietitians, psychiatrists who are much more sensitive and uh, knowledgeable and trained in dealing because it is very, very specialized. And I, I, I'm, I'm glad you say that because I think that that's an important thing to know where uh, if you have that knowledge, you can have that discussion and have a realistic discussion with your patient of what the options are. If they're like, well, I don't know, maybe I want to do surgery, maybe I don't, I'm not really sure. You know, you might have a pretty good therapeutic discussion, but on the other hand, if you don't have that other stuff, you may unknowingly be 
kind of dropping the ball for that patient, which isn't really helpful because I think it's critical to help with any of our, with all of our patients to create a sense of safety where they can really talk about things and have that level of support. Yes. You know, when folks may be in the, in the average practice, somebody might be working with a client and they might think something's up or maybe they think they're lesbian or gay or something. And then the person starts disclosing more about their gender issues. So that's a common scenario. It does not mean automatically they need to refer the person out completely. There are a number of folks who I work with uh, simultaneously while they're seeing somebody else as their primary therapist. Because if you have a trusting, good relationship with somebody, that doesn't necessarily need to end. Sure, yeah. We want support where we can get it. But we need to then have those folks, those practitioners need to refer to a gender specialist if they do not have this expertise and they can collaborate and coordinate care. You know, there are a number of folks who I may see them several times and then maybe I'm going to see them once every other week or down to once a month as they go back toward their primary therapist. Uh, there are some folks who switch over to me completely, but a lot of folks, you know, there are not enough of us who specialize in this area to see all of the transgender folks in the world or the gender nonconforming people. So in terms of treatment models, collaboration may be a useful thing to think about, but recognizing when any of us is kind of out of our depths is ethical practice and we need to be able to refer folks out then. Right. Obviously there is that which is unilateral about if you go into an area that you don't know anything about, your approach is not like, eh, we'll see what happens. <laughs> like, I'll just try my best. Like you need um, additional training because, uh, you know, and as we're talking, it's, it's, this isn't just about, again, it reminds me of how much you need to know to do good work because the average clinician, I just, if, you know, we pluck one from the ether that, you know, they may be like, I got it. And, and totally conflate gender with sexuality, which are two different things. Yeah. Uh, and then that becomes a confusing, just a mess, uh, where I think, again, just that is something to know the difference between that, um, those two areas, even just the average clinician. So you can clarify, how does this person identify? Where are they in this moment? You know, that kind of stuff. Yes, when I give talks, I have a couple of slides that address that very important issue you raise. I'm glad you talked about that. So one of my slides says you can be cisgender, and then it lists out that all the different varying sexual orientations, or not all of them, but a number of them, that you can be gay or straight or lesbian or bisexual or pansexual or polysexual or asexual or scoliosexual, that there are a number of different ways you can be sexually oriented and be cisgender. There are also all those ways of being sexually oriented while you're being trans. So you can be a transgender man who is gay, meaning you are attracted to men. Mm -hmm. You can be a transgender man who's bi or pan or poly, etc. Or you can be a trans woman and be lesbian, bi, pan, poly, asexual. So that's a really important distinction. When people are working with adolescents, it's particularly important, you know, prepubescent or pubescent adolescents, it's extremely important 
to be knowledgeable. Just saying, well, we'll wait and see is not good therapy. This is an area in which no action is not doing no harm. It can be very harmful. Because if you have a transgender girl, somebody assigned male at birth, who is identifying as female, and you delay their getting appropriate care, they're going to develop broader shoulders, they're going to develop facial hair, they're going to develop a deeper voice and an Adam's apple. All of those things are going to be expensive and painful, and some are not going to be reversible, like the broader shoulders or the larger hands and feet. So it's harmful to withhold that kind of treatment that could have spared them going through a male puberty by using puberty suppressing or blocking medications early on. And then as everybody was clear that yes, indeed, this is what needs to happen, administering hormone that is gender affirming so that this trans girl only goes through a female puberty and does not have the broader shoulders or a much more masculine face or all those other kinds of masculinized features that I was talking about. And the same goes the other way around with trans boys growing into, into men that we do them a disservice if we withhold those treatments and so this is, again, why it's really important to be competent and get the treatment as soon as possible, not withhold the treatment. Well, I also think what comes up for me when you say that is how, again, all the many ways you can easily push away the patient in a way. And because and, when I think of that, I think of it's a condescending attitude, right? You come in and, and it's like they're 14 and they're like, yeah, I, I think I actually... I think I identify as trans and I, you know, and the person being like, man, let's wait a couple years is really insulting. Right. I mean, even if the conclusion is correct where they're like, no, actually, you know, I was searching and actually I'm pansexual and that's not a gender thing. It's more of a sexuality thing. I didn't have the vocabulary. Even if the conclusion remains the same, it's still very insulting to say like, I'm not going to, the message is I'm not taking you seriously. And I know more than you do about you. And I think that, that we do serious harm to the people we work with when we have that attitude, when we have the like, well, I'm the expert and I know actually more than what you're talking about. And even more to the point you're talking about with this population is that there are those critical times where any delays can really, you know, uh, push things in a different direction, a more complicated, a more painful direction. Yes, when we are providing care, we are in a position of power. Absolutely. And that is a very, um, as you say, insulting. It's a very marginalizing kind of attitude to say, well, let's just wait a couple of years or let's see. And I have a lot of people come in who have been told that. And it's very frustrating. I have one family I was working with, and it was really interesting because the father I remember saying about the kid who is transitioning as a middle school high school student the father said that he came to the realization that it was actually a gift 
to have the child transition while still living at home because they got to know their kid better as the person they really identified as and who they really authentically experienced themselves to be. And so we do a disservice to the whole family system then if we don't facilitate that process when it is the appropriate set of uh, treatment protocols that need to be pursued. And I just thought that was so touching and insightful Mm -hmm. because it's a lot different to have your kid in your home in high school versus goes to college and transitions in college or after college. You're not going to know your kid nearly as well. That's a really wonderful story. And I wish more parents had that kind of level of open-mindedness and and acceptance, you know, because I think about you know, that again, how does it impact the patient when we disregard and we don't take seriously what they're saying? Um, and I, when I train supervisees, I, I, one of the things I talk about is that, you know, we're not in the business necessarily of objective truth. You know, we're in the business of like, why wouldn't I believe, you know, what this person is saying in front of me? Um, and I, and again, I think that that is like the easiest way we can push people right out of the system and we never know. We're like, Oh, I don't know why they didn't come to their next session. Maybe because you were condescending and disregarded their thoughts and feelings, uh, because you thought from your perspective that that didn't make sense. And I think as, um, there's been such a rapid, to me, it feels like a rapid, um, explosion sounds dramatic, but far more information and news suddenly about gender um, that more there, there's a little more safety that's debatable there's a little more safety in some areas so more people are coming forward and then you have like a 12 year old who I would argue it's an issue of safety not that like man a 12 year doesn't know what they're talking about they're like no I've been feeling this and this is you know they feel safer to be able to talk about that but we have to I think for a lot of people as time progresses, we're going to learn more, we're going to see more and have a better record. But I think right now that it's constantly shifting our culture and that that I think sometimes people hide behind or, or they just are not aware of. And that's why a 12 year old comes in and says part of the issue of why I feel so depressed is, you know, my body doesn't match my, you know, my brain, the, you know, the inside doesn't match the outside. And you're like, ah, well, 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 you know, I get it. High school's hard. You know, why don't we just wait a few years and we'll, you know, do something else, which is just a horrible thing to do to somebody. Yeah, I think that the gay and lesbian rights movement made a big impact. I think that made a huge dent in the heteronormative assumptions that I was talking about at the beginning of our our conversation. And that helped start undermining people's holding fast to the idea that, oh, and part of being heteronormative means that you're going to be attracted to somebody of the opposite sex well when so many people came to know somebody who was gay or lesbian you know now it's around 70 percent at least of people are indicating they know somebody who's gay or lesbian that has made such a huge change so even before the supreme court ruling came out legalizing same-sex marriage across the land in america there were a number of states that had passed laws that endorsed or allowed for same-sex unions and marriages to be legally recognized. So I think that helped set the um, 
set the tone or, or start making a little bit easier tilling the ground for people who are trans or gender nonconforming to be able to start coming forward and for people to start going, okay, this is somehow related. Therefore, the, the LGBTQ, right? Uh, it's not exactly the same, but it's kind of related. Yeah, I, I sometimes I think about it when you talk about that, that, yeah, that that was a big push from uh, uh, lesbian and gay individuals pushing for that, the Supreme Court ruling, uh, more and more places allowing for, you know, same-sex marriage, um, that as we become as we create more safety and create more space where people can say who they are and I, I my, the optimist side of me thinks that I hope that it gets pushed to such a degree such a degree that people even the average person is forced to ask more questions that you that it, that there that things become arguably so complicated and so nuanced because that is the way it is or just just wonderful uh, array of of possibilities and be and lives that people have that uh, people will have to stop and say just because you're wearing a wedding ring doesn't that could mean anything that could mean a lot of things um, and having to I hope slow down and ask people more I know when I practice with folks just because a person looks a certain way I still have to ask um, how do you identify and, I, and I'll and I'll joke um, with folks and I, and they'll and sometimes they're like black what is, I'm like I'm like you could be Haitian you could be Puerto Rican I, I I have no idea I'd rather just ask and not guess as to how you identify and usually people laugh and they're like well that's kind of nice um, and so I'm hoping that from a cultural perspective that on a long enough timeline people are going to be forced to ask more questions that you won't be able to assume um, a lot of things about people yeah, I have, I've had the same experiences when I'm asking somebody to identify as Caucasian or something, and some people will sometimes chuckle, but it's like, I'm trying to ask and not make assumptions. I think this might be a good point for me to tell you a little bit also about my own background of getting sure. into this work, because I may want to reference some things here in, as we continue. You know, I really didn't expect to get into doing this work, Zach. I graduated with my doctorate in 1989. I feel like a dinosaur as I say that. Uh, please don't do all the math. But what there was very little going on in terms of gender and gender identity education and transsexual, transgender stuff in my graduate program when I was going through school. But when I look back on my life history, it kind of made sense that I got into this field because, you know, all right, now I'm going to have to do the math for you. I, <laughs> I'm 56. I was born in 1962. And growing up in the 60s and 70s, the women's liberation movement was starting to come afoot. And I was always intrigued by the idea of these folks opposing all these rules and limitations on girls and women, which, by the way, are also limitations on men and boys. Uh, and I'm using binary terms there just for shorthand at the moment. But what I found was that I was really curious about these because I did not like the rules for girls and women because I was assigned a female gender marker at birth. And I grew up, was raised as a female. 
Now, I was fortunate that even though my parents tended to be on the very conservative side, um, very traditional, my mother was an old-fashioned Southern woman, and my father was a military guy with Latino background, and they were very traditional, and yet they were okay with me being a, quote, tomboy. I have something of a kind of typical story here in that I was tomboyish when I was a kid. Liked to play football and play with Hot Wheels and Army Men, even though my dad was in the Navy. Don't tell him. No. Um, I never told him. And uh, it was great to have that kind of room to be me. And I remember when I was about eight, even telling another kid I wanted to be a boy, but it just seemed impossible, you know, especially back then. So that would have been around 1970-ish. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I didn't see an alternative. And it's like, I just fear, okay, well, I guess I'm stuck with this body, so I'm just going to make the best of it. And was grateful that I had room. And then middle school happened and high school and I started feeling the social pressure, particularly even from my peers. And this is when a lot of kids start to get in touch with their gender identities nowadays. Because between puberty and feeling like things are getting more gender segregated, and it was expected that I would be attracted to boys, and I just wasn't. And I started to think, oh, I guess... I'm supposed to girl up now. And one of the things that's also expected sometimes is girls will then decrease their academic performances. I got too much reinforcement for academics, and I, that's why I'm overeducated. But, and, and I also enjoyed school a lot. And so I focused on school, and I think maybe that was a saving grace for me that I focused a lot on my studies. And then in high school, as I got clear that, oh, and I'm attracted to girls, I was like, oh, maybe that's the thing that explains also why I don't like all these rules for girls. And eventually, you know, in my 20s, I'm giving you a very short version here, but in my 20s, I kind of came to terms with being a lesbian and uh, came out as a lesbian, and, and your viewers don't know this, but it always kind of cracks me up when I'm speaking in audiences uh, where they can see me that, you know, I've got a beard, and so it's kind of funny to say I used to be a lesbian, but I just became more and more masculine over the next two decades from my 20s into my 40s, and I was fortunate that I had the education and enough social skills because my dad was in the military. We moved every few years and my parents taught us how to make friends and introduce ourselves, etc. So I've learned a few social skills and have managed to be relatively successful in my practice and uh, for example, with the Georgia Psychological Association, where I started the Committee on Sexual Orientation Concerns back in the 1990s. And then, as I became more masculine, you know, or what people now call butch, more and more butch, you know, my hair was getting shorter, my, my clothes were getting more and more masculine, to the point where I would wear 
the same kind of clothes that I wear now, um, but I still was female appearing. And in my 40s, I think that I had enough quiet because my work life was, my professional life was very stable. I was in a long-term partnership of about a decade at that point. My stepdaughter was nearly finished with college and uh, my health was pretty good. My family relationships were pretty good. Uh, if you remember, I said my family was, my parents were pretty conservative. My coming out as a lesbian had been a bumpy road. So when I started recognizing that, you know, okay, things are calmer now, things are better with my folks, as well as all these other areas, my life, I think I had enough quiet in my life. And this trans stuff was starting to get a little more media press. And I started to realize, oh, I think this may be something I need to pay attention to. And I'm also a very spiritual person. So I started doing a lot of prayer and meditation and journaling and talking to the closest people to me about my gender questions that were coming up. And this was probably about a decade ago, maybe 11 years, 2007-ish. And I started realizing, yeah, this really is a thing. And it took a year just to kind of work through my shame about being different. You know, there's this, it's a very surreal experience to think, most people can answer, are you, you know, what's your gender with an M or an F and they're done with it. To feel like I needed to write an essay was like, hmm, I feel like something's wrong with me or this is weird. And it took a while to come to some self-acceptance and then to work through the fear. Took kind of another year and to like then plan how am I going to manage this? How am I going to roll this out? What is medically reasonable and feasible? And it is really a huge leap of faith when somebody undergoes a gender transition because I didn't know what I was going to look like, what I was going to sound like. And um, I was terrified, frankly, of losing my family relationships because it had been so difficult coming out the first time as a lesbian. I was afraid about losing friends or my neighbors thinking this was weird or my colleagues thinking I was a freak or my practice closing. And so part of a good transition is, you know, what I put my anxiety into was a lot of planning. And so I planned, you know, I went and interviewed for a job in case my practice folded. I made a very orderly plan about who I was going to tell in what order. I talked through the ethics of it with several colleagues because I was very concerned about my clients. Is this going to be disturbing to them or how would they take this? Sure. And sure. yeah, so I was very mindful and intentional about every step of the way. And then I, you know, started doing each of the steps that I had planned out and I had an amazing experience that actually I'm really glad to hear a lot of other people are having them too. Not everybody, but so many people were supportive. 
a lot of people were not very surprised because I was already looking pretty doodly. Uh, it wasn't a big psychological leap. And a few people, like my brother-in-law and a couple of friends, even anticipated. And in fact, when I told a couple of my clients early on, uh, the first ones who were more attuned to these issues said, well, I'd wondered if you'd ever thought about that. <laughs> so, so. You're like, all right, I'll take that. That's okay. I'll take that. That's, I'll take that as support. Exactly. But my clients were actually very supportive, as a matter of fact. Most of them said either, you know, this is inspiring for me to make changes. Uh, this is, if this makes you happy, that's great. And even the couple of folks who I was most concerned about, like some women who'd been sexually abused by men, they said, maybe this will help me develop better relationships with men. So it was really touching to see just how my clients handled it. And by the way, the first time I told them, I was planning, expecting potentially big, long conversations. But after about three to five minutes, they're kind of like, okay, well, so you're good to go. You got your support. Can we talk about my divorce now? <laughs> I'm like, okay, we'll, we'll do it. And then, you know, just so many people were supportive. And my friends were really supportive. They asked some of the most important questions first, like, so should I call you a new name? And should I call you a new pronoun? Or in what circumstances should I do that? Um, my, you know, when you transition, you have to tell everybody. So if you want to keep those relationships intact. So I had to tell my mechanic because I really trust them and I want to be able to still take my car there or tell my dentist or my GI doctor. So even though this isn't directly affecting my transness, I still need to make sure you're okay, that I'm going to be looking and sounding different. So I found a very brief way of basically saying, I'm going to be going through a gender transition. I'm telling you because I'm going to look and sound different and it'd be weird not to tell you. And so for people who weren't really close to me, that was about all they got. And that was about all most people needed unless they were really close to me and then it was a bigger conversation. Mm -hmm. What really touched me, I'll tell you my personal professional life and then I'll take a breath and give you a minute, <laughs> is in my professional life, Zach, I was asked by my colleagues, first one of the presidents of GPA, the Georgia Psychological Association, asked me to chair the annual conference. I had worked on other committees in GPA, and she asked me to chair the annual conference, and I did that back in 2012, and I actually, I worked really hard on it because I was not gonna be the first transgender person to chair this and not have it go well. You don't wanna be out there and blow it. Right, yeah. exactly. Don't wanna be the poster boy and make a mess of it. So fortunately, it sold out, and it was a very well-received program. And then, actually that same year, they asked me to run for president of GPA. But that was only a couple of years. It was like my second year of being on hormones, and I'm kind of like, I'm kind of still figuring out my manhood and my dudeness and who the heck am I and how am I doing this. So intuitively, I had just said, thank you, but I, I can't do that. 
So a few years later, in 2016, I was asked again. And at that point, I actually felt ready to do it. And it's interesting to me because I had wondered about this back when I was a lesbian. And I thought, no, I don't feel up for that kind of public profile or that kind of exposure, that um, level of demand on me. But with my gender transition, I felt ready to do that. I felt able to do that. Like I had some energy freed up in me. I had some capacities in me that I had not been able to access before because at some level I was dealing with my transness and unaware that that's what I was dealing with. And so being able to transition allowed me to bring my full self into my professional life. So both in GPA, where I served as president and finished in June of this year, 2018, as well as in my practice. And now I'm doing a lot of trainings around the world and around the country, as well as here in the Atlanta area on gender issues. And I've just, it's like I'm in a second gear of life that I never knew I had. So I've felt really fortunate. And when I talk at schools about this, it really helps administrators and teachers and parents get like, oh, my kid may have more to them. And I see so many kids do better in school after they're uh, able to transition. And finally, I'll tell you about my family. You know, I was terrified. I thought, oh man, if being a lesbian was hard. Uh, this is going to blow their minds. I'm going to totally lose my relationships with my parents. And I grieved it in anticipation. And the short version is I got a call from my mom. I sent them letters because I was thinking I'm going to let them have their response. I gave them a lot of information and sent a very loving letter to my parents. And my mom called and said, your, <laughs> my folks were in their late 70s at this point, said, your dad had to go to his barbershop quartet rehearsal, but he said to say, hello, son. And it um, chokes me up every time I think about it. And that was even before I had done any medical transition and to feel like they got me was so liberating and reassuring. And it actually removed some barriers that I'd had in my relationships with them that I had not realized were there due to this gender tension within me that was manifesting in the relationships, but I did not know how to articulate what the issue was. And it just meant the world to me to have their support and I share this with parents as well, because if I was a grown man, becoming a grown man at that point, and it meant that much to me, how much more important is it for kids and teenagers and young adults that their parents and families are supportive of them? That's what we need to help insulate young people uh, against 
the those statistics. In fact, it's the best uh, preventive factor in reducing suicide risk in this population is having the family support. So, so I just said a whole lot of stuff. Well, I, I'm going to work backwards. I, I can't let go of the, um, and we can note it. We don't have to spend a, a lot on it, but, but seriously high suicide rates for this population. Very, very high. Um, uh, at, at my work, I do presentations about suicide risk just in general and talk about what are the warning signs. And I always note that there are just such high rates, you know, because of a population that is oppressed and a population that is misunderstood and marginalized. And thus, if, if the environment is telling you, you have no value, then that gets internalized. And I guess I don't have any value. Why should I be alive? Period. Pause. I really, really appreciate your openness um, and the depth at which you talk about your life uh, on the show. Um, and just in, in general, I, I really think it's important and I really appreciate that you would talk at such great length about your life uh, and what that process has been like and how it's informed your work, that it's one part of the larger piece because, you know, it is one part of your identity, but it's obviously not the only part of your identity. So I really want to say thank you for, um, yeah, just being so, being willing to be so vulnerable because I think there's a lot to take from that story uh, and a lot for people to learn from. And, and to me, I keep coming back to this idea um, uh, of just trying to, you know, not get lost in so many details and, uh, and try to, can you boil it down to basic things about how do we work as people? And I keep coming back more and more and more to the idea that safety is essential. I just, I, I, I keep thinking about it and I keep talking about it with people and that when people don't feel safe, it creates issues, Right. I don't feel safe going to this classroom because I feel like I'm going to fail this exam and because I haven't studied. And so thus I have anxiety or, you know, I, I don't feel safe to leave my house because there's a bunch of gang activity happening. Um, I don't feel safe because I'm, you know, afraid to be a, you know, young black male in the culture or I don't feel safe. Um, because I, I'm afraid of getting sexually assaulted. I, I just, and, and those are like clear examples, but I just feel like more and more and more and more, and, and especially when I hear your story about that, how critical safety is and how important it is to, to feel safe. Because one thing I, I was listening to was you said, I had a quiet in my life. And to me, it's you were safe in the moment. Things were stable for the, for the, in that period for you to re-explore things. Because if you don't have that sense of safety, you, you're having to be on guard. You're having to protect yourself, which um, utilizes resources and blocks you from being able to, you know, explore yourself. Or even in, a, in another way, I think about it, or just like create things, create art, or engage with people. If you're having to spend more and more energy to to uh, I got to do this, I got to do that to feel safe. Does that make sense? Totally. I I think that's a great word because there's not just the physical safety, which is a concern for people who are trans because there's a lot of trans violence. Um, 77% of youth report that between kindergarten and 12th grade, they experience some degree of negative treatment, whether it's verbal assaults, physical assaults, sexual assaults, 
being called the wrong names, be intentionally being misgendered, etc. And when somebody's transitioning, they're wondering about my physical safety. When you're an adult, you're worrying about your financial safety, worrying about the emotional safety. You know, how are my colleagues going to react? How are my my friends, my family going to react? So safety is, yeah, so critical. That's a really useful word here. Well, and I also think about when, uh, first of all, 77%, that was the number, right? 77% is a staggering number. Um, I, I also think about, um, the bathroom issue, you know, I, I think about it all the time, um, because of, 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 again, trying to be aware of these issues, trying to be, um, progressive in the sense that I think it, I think most therapists, it's kind of required to be progressive because you have to, you're required to have an open mind so you can be more objective and you create more, um, of a space Not everybody does that. But so it's hard not to take a lot of these ideas and bring them into everyday life. And every time I'm just anywhere in public and I, and I, and I think about that, about that level of privilege of it's just there. I don't have to think about it. Just go right in the men's room and that's that. And how just any, uh, gender nonconforming transgender, however you're identifying just a simple, like, Oh, I'm going to go out to eat with friends. I like my friends for hanging out. We went saw a movie and now it's like, Oh, I got to use the bathroom and just immediate anxiety. And, and the, the lack of safety that I, that, I, that is created for so many people, which is a whole other thing I think about is like, that is going to me, um, that has to get addressed on a much larger level. And I feel like it's just a certain, and to me, it doesn't feel like that's complicated. It's that complicated of a fix. Cause there's a lot of people who've just like changed signs and made like gender neutral bathrooms. It doesn't seem that hard. Uh, and I, I just, I wonder how long it will take before that eventually gets changed um, and showed a little more nuance. Cause again, I think that's a simple way where safety is taken away, which shifts me to a related question about um, you have a private practice, you work, you have your own office, you may or may not have control over the building and their bathrooms. So I, I wonder how, how do you manage that when like that can potentially send a mixed message to the people you're working with? You can have great forms, you can have like be super, you know, mindful. And yet there is that layer, which I feel like kind of has to get addressed at some points. So I don't know. What, I don't know what you think about that. I think I'm lucky in my office building because in addition to the gender divided bathrooms upstairs on the main floor, there is a gender neutral bathroom, no label on it. And so that feels very appropriate and very useful. I do think that that presents a challenge for some folks. And, um, you know, I think that in different settings, people need to come up with creative solutions, like maybe have somebody go to escort them to the restroom uh, or stand outside for a moment. Uh, You know, there are a lot of different ways of trying to help somebody be safe or maybe they go to a different floor to use the restroom. Um, This is an area in which people have to be a little more creative. And I usually have very conservative therapy boundaries, but you have to be a little more flexible in this area to be able to meet people where they are and where, what their needs are given some of the realities out in the world. 
I was like you were about to say something. I didn't want to interrupt. Well, I was just going to say, you know, the bathroom issue is a, a great example of the kind of things that people do experience problems with because there are a lot of people who, I'm trying not to throw a ton of numbers at you, but there are a lot of people who actually limit their food and drink during the day. They avoid using public restrooms. They'll limit their food and drink. I had a parent of a kid today just find out at a PFLAG meeting that that was the thing to ask their kid about. It was the first time they were coming to see me, but on the phone I had mentioned PFLAG to the parent. And the parent went to the PFLAG meeting for our first appointment today. PFLAG stands for Parents and Friends of Lesbians and Gays, PFLAG.org. I'm not a paid sponsor. <laughs> but if you want more information yes. about that, that's the website. Yes. And uh, at PFLAG, she'd heard your kid might not be going to the bathroom. She went home and asked the kid, and sure enough, the kid's not going to the bathroom at school. And I've had other kids who don't do that. Folks end up getting UTIs. I had my mother who said her kid ended up having to go to the ER, the emergency room, because the child was impacted um, because he, they had not gone to the restroom. And, you know, there are all sorts of nuances here that make even just something like the restroom really important. It's funny because in some countries in Europe, they don't, have some of these same divisions and they might have floor to ceiling stalls um, but also it's just understood that people are supposed to be respectful and and that people have to use the bathroom and right. providing that space yeah it's it's something something that is important to be mindful about and and I think of those examples uh, of a just you know, I, I talk to people all the time. I talk to patients about, you know, we only have so much energy in a given day, right? Your energy might go down and then you could, you know, can fluctuate to some degree within a day, you know, where you're like, oh, you're a little tired and maybe you didn't eat. Now you eat, you have a little more energy, you know, you have a second wind that can maybe take a nap, that kind of a thing. Um, but we only really have a finite amount of energy. And so I just think that if you have, that small, like the finite amount, and I'll make up a number, but 40% is being used up about, well, let me think about what I'm eating, and then where am I going to be going, and I, I think they have a bathroom, maybe I can go to the second floor, but last time it was out, and which way do I want to go, what am I going to wear today? Think about all the other things you that energy can't be used on. Like it's harder to, I would imagine harder to focus on class, harder to just feel okay, harder to engage, you know, um, just something simple of like, you might be in high school and they're like, Hey, we're all going to go to, you know, this one restaurant, let's go all eat. And you're like, what is the bathroom like in that situation? Where are we going to be sitting? And like how much energy that eats up? It, it's exhausting. Yes. A lot of people have anxiety and particularly social anxiety because of how they're going to be read in public and all that kind of stuff, one of my bathrooms, etc. The kids I work with tell me all sorts of nuanced things, you know, like one teenager, older high school student, uh, when this person's name was changed legally, uh, the parents had gone through that process with this kid after they'd been working with me for a good while. The kid said to me, I don't get gender dysphoria just from signing my name on a test now. So just something that most of us do every day. We write our name down, sign our signature a number of times a day to not have to deal with it in that way. So there's 
you know, the bandwidth kind of thing is a great way of thinking about this because think about all the other things we're juggling in our lives and then to have this on top of it, it's really a lot to be dealing with. Well, it takes that much less to feel overwhelmed, to, to burn out, to feel exhausted because you're having to spend so much energy on every given day to just, am I safe? What do I do? And that, that like that kind of plotting and planning um, that I think a lot of other people who are, you know, cisgender, hetero, whatever, have a, have a different kind of privilege. Their stress comes from, oh, I'm going to be driving, you know, taking a road trip and like, it's a little stressful. I want to be on highways like, but it's not that much because it, it, you, you're done once you're done with the road trip. Not every day, a chunk has to be dedicated to that. Um, and I, and I, I have a few other things and I, I want to like back up to, to something we were talking about, about in thinking about this interview and, and, and in thinking about some of the things we were going to talk about, I, I was, I was like, well, when did I start hearing more about that, about, you know, transgender, you know, um, gender nonconforming, things like that. And, and I was thinking about, when I was in college and I'm thinking about when I took this, it was a diagnostic course. And so this would have been probably the first diagnostic course I took was in like 2003, maybe something like that. So 15 years ago, 15 years ago, I rem I remember this and it, and it, I was, it was called back up in my mind when I was thinking about this interview. I remember us like, you know, it was, the class was just the, the diagnostic manual and going over, here's what the depressive disorders are. Here's what the anxiety, here's post-traumatic stress, you know, the big ones. But every now and then in, in a lecture, they would be like, ah, oh, and there's also this other thing just to be mindful about. And I absolutely remember having a discussion in that class. It's almost like a toss away thing of like, Oh yeah. And it's, it's like really, really rare, but like sometimes people, you know, they, they don't feel like they, their insides match their outside. It was like a 10 minute conversation. It was like, well, gender dysphoria and some people don't, you know, they don't feel that way. And so that's the, but it's like very, very rare. And it was said in the same way of, cause I remember in that same class we talked about, and I always mispronounce this. Um, I think it's crab grass delusion. Do you know that one? I think it's like crabgrass or crabgrass or crab. I think it's crabgrass delusion. Oh no. Yeah. It, it's like super, super fringe. It's where, um, it's a delusion, um, where someone's psychosis takes the, the belief that everybody in their life has been replaced with somebody else. Hmm. And so that when I, when you see your friend, Tony, it's not really Tony. And so in, and by the way, in my history, I, I've, I've been working with folks for 10 or 11 years one time I've ever seen that. Um, and I was like, oh, but again, that it, it was said talking about um, transgender issues. And it wasn't even that language it was like, it's a thing just so you know about it, but you're probably not going to see it. And then I think in just to me, 15 years isn't that long of a time to now you have people like Caitlyn Jenner and you have so many more people um, talking about it that it, it's just inter it's this isn't like. Um, like, you know, when, when homosexuality was still in the DSM, like that's talked about like, well, back in the day, man, we, man, we made some mistakes that isn't that long ago within my, um, time of training where that was talked about and like, eh, it's not a transsexual, it's a thing. Like it's a, not an aberration in like a bad way, but it's, does that make sense? Like it, that's how I was trained about like, you don't really need to think about this. Yeah. The numbers used to even currently in the dsm-5 the numbers are way underestimating and as i was 
telling you the percentages that are coming out in more recent studies, like from the Williams Institute, or there's Massachusetts surveys and Virginia surveys, and there's one in New Zealand. They're finding the younger folks are also much more attuned to these things, and so they're identifying much more as trans or gender nonconforming. It's so much more common than many of us realize. And I'll tell you, anybody who specializes in this work, we are just swamped nowadays, have our hands full. And in fact, I feel like I need to dedicate a lot more time to doing training on these issues because we're seeing there's so much of a need. If you look in the metro Atlanta area, being about 6 million people, that means there's about 60,000 trans folks and about 120,000 gender nonconforming. That's a whole lot of people, way more than I'm ever going to see. And so we need competent clinicians. Um, I would like to add at this point, speaking of competent clinicians, some of the trainings I do are for an organization called WPATH. WPATH stands for the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. And they have a website also, WPATH.org. And WPATH is known for writing the standards of care, or the SOC, that are typically utilized by most, I won't say all, but by most um, really experienced pr uh, practitioners in this area. At the very least, a practitioner in this area should know about it. I've had people tell me they're working with trans folks, and then I say something about WPATH, and they're like, what's that? That's really disturbing to me. So WPATH on the seventh version of the standards of care. And they are the things that are used to give us guidance around what is competence in working with this population, both for children and adolescents as well as adults. Guidelines around hormones, voice therapies, surgeries, and other types of treatments, as well as in institutional settings and other things we need to think about across the globe. Now, WPATH is in the process of revising those, updating those to the seventh to the eighth version, and hopefully that's going to be coming out next year. Um, it may a draft might be released at the WPATH conference in Argentina in next month in November, but for sure it's supposed to be coming out next year. And this gives guidance that is being used by insurance companies nowadays that are covering surgeries and hormones, by the prison systems, by justice systems, sometimes by school systems. So a lot of practitioners who specialize in trans issues use the WPATH standards of care. And they have become more and more accessible in terms of facilitating the treatment with the medical interventions. But basically, there's tr trying to make sure that the person has been accurately diagnosed as having gender dysphoria and then that the next appropriate steps and that the support is in place and that they're mentally stable, et cetera, to be able to proceed with care. I would add, by the way, diagnostically, the U.S. is behind the times in that 
gender dysphoria in the next iteration of the ICD, which is an international classification of diseases used by the World Health Organization. The rest of the world is primarily using ICD-11. In the U.S., we're using the ICD-10. In the ICD-11, it's called gender incongruence, and it's no longer in the mental health chapter. It's in the sexual health chapters. So, which, by the way, matters. Yes, it matters. On, uh, it, you know, on a philosophical level, on a principle level, and again, insurance, and there, there's so much that that impacts. You were saying. Yes. Well, that's exactly the really important thing. I mean, there's still the access to care because there is a code that insurance companies can be given to process somebody's condition, but it's no longer a mental health disorder. It decreases the stigma which is part of the, one of the things that adds to stress. Absolutely. Yeah, it it really, really does matter. And um, I guess we'll have to see as uh, we continue to edit our DSM or if more systematically or systemically would be the word systemically, if we eventually just shift to ICD. Um, Because I feel like there are some places that are kind of entertaining a lot of like hospital campuses use more of the ICD. Um, And so that term makes a lot more sense. Um, dysphoria is, is very sounds, you know, like stigmatizing, um, which again, doesn't help the larger and doesn't really, I doubt make people feel safe. Um, I, I had a, another question as we're, as we, you know, as we slowly wind down, um, I can't help but ask, cause it keeps coming up in my mind, uh, in my own experience, uh, in, doing therapy in general, but I I wonder if we back up in time about how it has been working with transgender folks and um, the LGBTQ population and non-binary folks uh, with uh, the current political um, environment. And let me be clear, I'm not interested in going on this whole tangent, but I think if that's your specialty area and then suddenly we have you know, well, transgender people shouldn't be in the military. Um, I have I have noticed in my in my experience that like politics have always been going on. In my experience with seeing people, unless there's some mega mega event that happens, like a 9/11 or you know when school shootings were a little less frequent, um, that would somehow come up. But I I've been so surprised at how much this keeps coming up and, and coming out of uh, the patients that I that I meet. And like even in, in like the right now with the Supreme Court nomination hanging, you know, hanging around every day, people are coming in and talking about uh, survivors, talking about their experience and talking about what this whole process is bringing up. So I wonder with the political climate, how it's if you've noticed differences, because you've been practicing, you know, longer than I have, if this feels different or this feels like man, this feels, you know, a couple of years ago was about the same or 10 years ago was kind of similar. This climate feels markedly different than anything I've ever experienced. And yes, nearly 30 years of practice. I have found people, especially right after the elections, were stressed for weeks and months, literally talking, spending appointments worth of time talking about their fears about feeling marginalized, about conflicts this was bringing up with family, 
with neighbors, with uh, fears about, you know, parents are scared for their kids. You know, what are going to be the implications for the kids in the school system? Is their kids going to be more in danger? Is their kid going to be protected? So it has been an incredibly stressful time for people in the trans community who are concerned about their well-being, about their opportunities in the world, uh, worried about the reaction publicly. I feel fortunate and maybe sheltered living and working in a more progressive area. And, you know, in the metro Atlanta area, a lot of my clients have not had problems on their jobs. They typically have what I call the three P's. They're professional, personable, and productive. And most employers want those things. And so the employers are accommodating. Even if it's a small shop, a small business, and they're, they've never met a transgender person in their life, they're willing to figure out how can we make this work. Um, and <laughs> I've even had some people say, oh, my HR department was really excited. They had the policy, and this is their first chance to use it. <laughs> <laughs> so it depends on where you live. You know, if you're outside uh, in more rural areas, people are running into more problems where there's less familiarity, less uh, kind of open-mindedness sometimes, not always, but sometimes. I've also met people who are in more rural areas who have very open minds and loving hearts, and it's not been a problem. And But the parents often or the people are concerned about their kids or they're trying to figure out how do I move maybe to a more urban area or how do I navigate this where I live. So it, it makes it a challenge. The, the socio-political environment is very present in the therapy room now. And that's why I asked because it, it I mean, I want to have a whole other episode on a different day um, talking about some other issues related to the current political climate and how it is impacting therapy to me that feels very, very different. And, but especially with this issue, when in, I was in living and working in Chicago, which as a, a friend of mine like to like to describe is a blue dot in a sea of red. Uh, and so very progressive city for the most part. Um, I think not too di- uh, dissimilar from Atlanta. Um, and uh, the reaction for weeks of people coming in the office across the board um, of being, you know, upset and fearful. And what is this going to look like? Am I going to lose my insurance? I have serious mental health issues. You know, I, I you know, distraught. I, I just, I've not seen that. And so that's why I wanted to ask you about that. So it's good to know you have a, a much larger pool of data of, of 30 years just to validate that that, that does um, seem to be uh, actually going on. Um, I want to double check to see if I have other, I guess another Another question that when I was talking to, here's a question I have. You identify as a trans man. And was that, would you, would you use that language? Yeah. I identify as, or I am? Do you, do you see? I don't know. Both are fine by me. Both are fine. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and you talk about being generally conservative when it comes to self-disclosure, right? 
that is my inclination in the therapy room. Yes. Yeah. In the therapy room. Yeah. Mine as well. And that, you know, from my training and for a lot of reasons. And so I wonder what are your, if you can speak just a little to this about, um, how that comes up in the room, because I, you know, I know that some people are like, you know, well, I, I'm a female and I would prefer to see a female therapist or I have a substance use issue. I can't fathom seeing a therapist who doesn't have a substance use issue and how there's an argument for that's not really going to add that much. Um, and there's an argument for maybe that would help or maybe that would make it complicated. So I wonder for you, it's not something that's hidden on your website. It's, you know, it's there. So I, I wonder how that, if that modifies it. Cause again, I could see people being like, Oh my, you get me. You have this, you know, the same thing like me. It has definitely become a thing I, I feel I need to address. I let my trans clients and the parents who are bringing their kids in know on the phone typically before they come to me. For me, I just don't want anybody to be surprised or to think that I have an agenda. And um, most people who come to me know in advance that I'm transgender and see it as an asset. There are a few people who don't know, who get referred to me and don't know, or maybe don't find the particular page or two that it's on on my website. But I try to be transparent about it so that nobody's surprised. And it's kind of a self-care issue for me, as well as uh, trying to make it easier for everybody to feel maybe less stigmatized as they come in. It probably means there's some self-selection about who comes to me also. Sure, sure. But I try to hear what the person's experience is as opposed to imposing mine on it. And that gives me the opportunity to learn about so many other gender journeys and so many other experiences and ways that people may experience their stress around their gender or have what I call gender moments, you know, where they feel the incongruence and the discomfort or sometimes dysphoria that, you know, somebody's assuming something about them based on gender marker assigned at birth or something. And that it doesn't really fit them. They'd much rather be wearing a different kind of set of clothes or shoes or hairstyle. Uh, that's a, little conflating gender expression with gender identity, but that's kind of one way we express some of our gender identity. So I find my gender comes up somewhat and my, my gender transition comes up somewhat. I try like in any therapy though, to be judicious about when I disclose and what I disclose and why. You know, that's kind of like, what is my motivation here? Or do I need to just be listening to somebody else's experience and reflecting it back to them for them to understand their experience better and to empower them or give them tools to get through it? No, I, I think that that makes a lot of sense because I, I, I asked because I was interested in like, I wonder how that comes up and how you address it. But I, I think that is when you said that how, how you 
typically you'd say it beforehand because I could see a family coming in and be like, oh, and then suddenly a session or three sessions in, they're like, wait a minute. I know what you're doing here. Like they they have to interpret why there wasn't a disclosure up front, which could be a rupture in that alliance, which would make sense, right? Um, and so it it's not necessarily a secret and it is relevant to like, here's your, you know, the, the idea of uh, building informed consumers, right? Like you're coming to, you know, to consume this service. And so here's your information, just like informed consent, right? Um, and so I, so yeah, I appreciate you talking about that. I was curious about how that might come up because I think a lot about self-disclosure and I, and I train folks about the idea of being, I'm using your word judicious about it and deliberate and intentional because sometimes there's a lot of times where you don't need to say anything about a particular subject and that there are other times where no it would make sense to disclose a little um, for this person and it's dependent or contextually uh, dependent when you would be sharing um, more of something. There was something else I was going to say about self-disclosure and about being judicious. Uh, if it's important, it'll come back up in my mind. Um, but that being said about that, as we, as we wind down, I don't know if any other, as we, before we shift to the, the, the separate section, um, about any, any final thoughts about things you think would be important to know bullet points for the average uh, person coming to therapy about this issue. I mean, you said a lot. So um, any other things like, oh, just, you know, if you're looking for these services, the, the best website is this one, which I can also include later um, in the notes of this episode or anything else, any other final thoughts about this? I think I've given several good, you know, resources, both for parents as well as for, um, adults seeking services for themselves. One of the wonderful things about the internet, which I think is what is also making so much of this easier is people can Google so much information is you can, in a city, you can usually Google transgender psychologist or psychology with transgender patients or something like that and find somebody who may be able to provide care. WPATH has a listing of providers, but not everybody's listed, you know, gone ahead and entered themselves in the directory. You could call the LGBT uh, hotline in your area or crisis line, the closest nearby, and they may have some resources for you, or the LGBT centers where you are. A lot of universities now have such centers at the university, and some of the schools have them. Uh, a number of the kids who come to me, the parents got my name from their counselors. You know, there's this grapevine out there. So there's a lot of information available if you ask around. Yeah, I've also noticed it on... Um uh, psychology today has you know from from the provider perspective you can click those bo- boxes and that does make it a little more convenient for people that's another resource if you're looking at that most people have it pretty clear about these this is the population I work with or I don't work with that um, and you know like anybody being an informed consumer just because it says that on there doesn't mean they actually know the first thing so it is worth about asking a little more information because you're spending the time the insurance the resources you might as well say like how much training do you have? You know, is this a specialty area or you've seen, you know, one transgender patient um, and you only saw them for two sessions? Like that's maybe not the person for you. Um, as we shift, you can, know, oh yeah, you were about I to say, I just sure. want to say one thing there. Yeah. I, I think that's a really important point. And, you know, there are ways of asking like, how much training have you had? 
And even if it wasn't in grad school, maybe they went to continuing education. Maybe they went to the WPATH certification training programs. They uh, can ask what standards of care or what model of care do you use in approaching things? And if somebody's using a standard of care, currently it should be seven, version seven. Next year, later in 2019, it should be version eight. And, you know, you can look on the WPATH website and download a free uh, printable version, a PDF of the of the standards of care. So you can know what the latest standards of care are that somebody should be practicing under. And, and again, as we, as I like to tell people, ask questions. People do it with all other doctors when they're like, all right, we recommend this surgery. How many of those surgeries have you done? What, what is the data where it seems natural that like, it wouldn't be strange to ask that of a therapist. Um, and so I encourage people to ask those kind of questions to get more information as we shift. Thank you for all of that. Uh, as we shift, um, the more there are sort of lightning round asking about therapy in general. If we boil it down, we get away from jargon um, and, you know, and all this theory, what do you really think is the core mechanism of change in therapy? Well, I think that it's a mix and research would kind of back this up of what the client's bringing and what the therapist is bringing. I think the client has to bring motivation and that can come from a lot of things, whether it's something they're moving away from that's not working anymore or is painful or moving toward that they want improved relationships or job performance or whatever they may be looking to change. I think they need to be experiencing the therapy room as a safe place, going back to what you were saying earlier, Zach. And to be able to get in touch with their strengths and be given maybe some ways of exploring those strengths by taking comfortable steps. Not too big a step, but you know, that's where I think baby steps are a great thing. One step at a time and then your next step and your next step. And it's amazing how far you can come after you've been taking one step at a time week after week or month after month. The small steps leading to larger change. Yeah. Yeah. Question two. What do you think makes a good therapist good and a bad therapist bad? I think good therapists are probably intuitively compassionate are inherently compassionate and hopefully they have some intuition and maybe they're curious so that there's not a sense of judgment. I think it's a complicated thing to do therapy. I think you need to be able to have a lot of knowledge but be able to know when to impart knowledge versus when to listen. Because I think some of therapy is educational and some of it is um, offering an unconditional caring environment so that people can feel supported 
and safe in at least one place as they envision themselves differently or as they let themselves heal their most vulnerable places. Would you suggest that a bad therapist just does the opposite opposite of those things and just doesn't provide that sense of safety and has like a, no, I, I know what's going on. I think that's a simpler way to get to what a bad therapist would do. Yeah. yeah. Um, final question. Uh, if you could see any fictional character um, and you would be the therapist and you'd have them in therapy, who would you see and why? So I'm glad we finally got to the most important question in this interview, Zach. <laughs> I, I wonder out there, I wonder out there when people listen to the, the, these episodes um, that I have no connection to and who knows where is like, I just want to hear that last part. Um, but, but you were going to say. So I, I was amused to see this on the list of questions. And I like this question a lot. I would like to work with Harry Potter. Okay. Uh, yes. No so, one said that as an answer, by the way. So here's why. So I figure first Harry is going to be bringing some understandable attachment and abandonment issues. Wait, time out. When would you be seeing Harry Potter? Oh, any stage he wants to come. Anytime he wants to yeah, come. Okay. Bring it. Bring it. Okay. Got it. You were saying. So he's going to have some attachment issues because of losing his parents, and then being adopted by the Dursleys, this difficult family. And I don't mean to sound too Harry Potter geeky here. But oh, no, you get into it. I, you're, we're on the same page. You say whatever jargon you okay. need to do. So You know, and how mistreated he was there. And that's going to affect his self-esteem, his self-worth, his self-confidence, and his sense of belonging in the world and having a community, his sense of safety. And then to discover later on that he has these special powers. He's part of this community he had no idea about, and it had been hidden from him. Uh, it had been unbeknownst to him. I, I have been found those stories so enchanting because it is the depiction of a subculture within a mainstream culture and how people within any subculture have to learn to accommodate and deal with that minority stress and things they know that when people are a minority group, they know about the mainstream culture that the mainstream culture doesn't know, but has maybe myths and misconceptions about the minority group. And so I think helping him navigate those identity waters and find that uh, in a healing way to encompass all of who he is and bring all of himself forward uh, would be a really rewarding thing also because he has one of those things that a client is also brings it's very desirable he clearly has resilience absolutely so harry potter's a great answer um Wow, I'm gonna have to think about that because when I think of Harry Potter, I think the the most glaring thing is the the trauma, just mostly with the Dursleys, but just every there's infinite traumas that happen, and I and I also wonder again, it would really depend on when are you seeing him, and I think if you catch him a couple years after the end of the when Voldemort is defeated, spoiler alert, I guess if you have somehow lived under a rock. <laughs> um, 
I, I, what comes up to me as I think of this is the identity piece is about, well, how do you see yourself now? I mean, you've been the boy who lived the, the, this, this identity for so long and now you have, you don't have this literal oppressor. So like, I, I wonder, you know, get, creating that space where he can talk about what, it, what, how does he see himself now? Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the trauma because that is a thing clearly he would, you'd expect or would not be unexpected for him to have PTSD kinds of symptoms. But yeah, the identity and the transitions into that identity as having magical powers and then the identity post-Voldemort, you know, it's fascinating, fun to think about. Absolutely. I'm going to think about this this more. Um, when, when, I, when I ask people this, I always, uh, you know, try to spend some time um, and try to be spontaneous of like, how would I answer that question now and who comes up for me? And so I think about like things I'm reading and, and uh, movies and stuff. And uh, I kind of was tossing a few around, but who, who comes up for me in this moment as I talk to you about who would I want to see as therapy is uh, what's comes up in my mind is the last version of a star is born with Chris Christopherson and Barbara Streisand, um, which is, I think the fourth version of it or third or fourth. Cause it's been it's third or fourth third. third. And now we're about to have the fourth, which is, if I'm uh, correct, it's with Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper that's coming out tomorrow. So that's what was on my mind. I was seeing those ads, and I just saw it for the first time a month ago. Uh, and man, what a good movie. But uh, I, I was thinking, who would I want to see? And so one, on the one hand, I'm like, man, could they use couples therapy? And I also <laughs> think about, man, does Chris Christopherson's character, you know, need a lot of therapy, the substance mm-hmm. use, the like abysmal self-worth, um, the like, what to me is some mood, something blackout depression, uh, uh maybe some, you know, bipolar disorder, unclear. Um, but that's somebody who, who, who could use way more support in there, um, and cut through that, you know, where, in the movie being so famous as a therapist, just being like, I, that's, I don't care. I don't care what songs you wrote and, and really focusing on the real him and the impact that he has on other people and helping him feel better about himself. So he doesn't have to like drive a motorcycle on stage and do things like that. On the flip side, I also think about, uh, Barbara Streisand's character having to endure his garbage behavior uh, for years and years and years, even though being in love with him uh, and providing that support because uh, of how the movie ends, that she might need a little more support relative to his um, self-indulgent, selfish behavior. Uh, so I, I think of all, all that. That's what I was thinking of. You, you looked like you, you had things to say about that movie. Well, I really like that because I'm excited to see the remake. Yeah. And it is a great movie. I saw one of the older versions recently, and uh, it's a compelling tale. It's a compelling story. And, yeah, those are very relatable characters. Some of us have seen some of those folks or been with some of those folks. Maybe some of us have been some of those folks. And... uh, that's a great answer. I had thought about them as well, but 
I don't know. For me, this right now is Harry Potter. But no, swing for the fences. Go, with, go with Harry. <laughs> go with Harry Potter. That is a great answer. And again, no one has said that answer. Um, there's been a bunch of other people, so we we're on the same page. I also, as a side note, to end on, um, when I uh, in training supervisees and talking to um, supervisees that are coming, you know, they're doctoral students and master's level. Uh, I, I'm adamant about that they have to get away from the textbooks at some point and that they need to be like connected to real life. And I tell them uh, that you have to read Harry Potter. You have to read and you have to watch Harry Potter because it has been so influential in our culture. And there's so many metaphors and analogies you can pull from that series that um, that our patients connect to because our patients don't care about clinical jargon. Um, and that... Uh, to me, I, I love this series, but also from a clinical perspective, I always um, put uh, speak very pointedly about like you. If you, ha I don't know how you've missed Harry Potter, but you should really read it and get used to it because it's it's such a big part of our culture and so easy to integrate. Because again, there's so many themes there that people just they know they've lived that life. Yeah, this is a really good piece of advice you're giving your your uh, trainees. I was really grateful that I was told as a trainee by one of my supervisors to be attuned to pop culture. That's absolutely what I say. Watch some of the programs, read some of the books, listen to some of the music so that you can relate to your clients and where they are. Uh, and there are things that are phenomenons you know, phenomena that need to be paid attention to because people are going to be relating to it. I absolutely tell people the, that that exact phrase of like, if it's super popular, you need to know about it because it's going to come in and you can easily pull on that and say, have you seen this movie? Or, you know, uh, let's talk about Lady Gaga or Ariana Grande or something um, because it's right there. And I also find that people usually aren't expecting that. And so they're like, oh, wow. And I think it personalizes it. And it is a subtle way of creating more safety. Um, and with that, we'll finish up. I really greatly appreciate your time, your openness, your expertise, um, and uh, just glad to have you on the show. Thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure, Zach. Thank you. Thank you. That's the show for today. Hopefully you enjoyed it. You learned some things. Again, you can find me on Twitter at 50MHpodcast. Again, at 50MHpodcast. Thank you for your time and listening to the show. And remember, together we're heavy. 